Let's bow forward in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning now to open your word, Lord, we are grateful for your goodness. We're grateful for uh, your presence here with us, for the opportunity to come together to encourage each other, to to, uh, lean on each other, to lean on you, God, and to recognize your place and your role uh, in our lives. Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us to leave here with a renewed commitment to you, a renewed focus on who you made us and uh, who you have um, equipped us to be, Lord, in this world that so desperately needs to see uh, love and needs to see light and needs to see you. And uh, we praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. One of the good things, or depending upon your uh, viewpoint, maybe bad things about theologians is we like to debate things. We like to get in our circles and we like to go back and forth about an interpretive viewpoint, a theological reality, a philosophical uh, perspective. Um, I quite enjoy it. It's one of the, the things that I, I most enjoy about my job uh, in terms of who I am and what I do. Um, and there's a story of one such encounter taking place on the campus of Oxford University. Uh, theologians were in the circle, and they, the, the subject for the day was, what is Christianity's distinctive contribution to the world? What is it that sets it apart from all other religions? What is it that, that makes Christianity Christianity? And they were debating uh, different aspects of, of uh, our faith, different aspects of what we believe, different aspects of, of who we are, and going back and forth, and uh, sometime in the midst of that argument, C.S. Lewis walked into the room, and uh, uh, he walked up to the group, and he said, what are we debating uh, this morning, gentlemen? And they said, we're debating what is Christianity's most distinctive or unique contribution to the world. And C.S. Lewis uh, quickly, immediately said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace is the most distinctive element of Christianity's a belief system of its perspective, of its outlook. When you look at all the other religions, when you look at all the, the things that man has come up with and the ways that man has shaped things, uh, what you see is a, a bunch of works-related realities. What can we do to earn the favor of the God that we worship or the God that we serve? What can we do to to make that God not angry at us? What can we do to to make that God bless us? What what can we do to to make that God do um, whatever it is uh, we're seeking at, at that particular moment. That's what religion brings to the reality. But Christianity is altogether different. Christianity says we can't do anything. Christianity says we are unworthy. Christianity says that our best is not good enough. And yet, our God loves us. And our God reaches out to us. And our God connects with us. Why? Because grace. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that's not something that man would create. That's not something man would come up with. Again, when you look at our history, when you look at our track record for coming up with religions, none of them go that route. And it's one of the the things that I believe authenticates the reality of Christianity, that we have a faith, we have a belief system that is uh, predicated upon God coming to us, and God saying, you're not worthy. I'm going to love you anyway. 
I'm going to save you anyway. I'm going to redeem you anyway. Now, one of the, the, the things that I think Christians sometimes get confused about or sometimes get a little off track on is the idea that grace began in the New Testament, that, that the Old Testament is all about works and earning your way and, and those sorts of things, that the Old Testament's all about uh, you know, trying to, to earn the pleasure of God and, and to, to soothe his wrath in, in that sense. But that's really not um, consistent with what the Scriptures tell us there either. When you look at the Old Testament, you, you see the testimony of Israel. And over and over and over again, God comes to Israel and he says what? I saved you. I redeemed you. I called you to be my people. I set you apart. All the earth is mine, but you're my special possession. And, and you see that exchange between God and Israel all the way through. And, and where that, what moment that is linked to and, and what idea or what concept or what action that is related to is the exodus. It's God coming to Israel in their enslavement, in their bondage, in their lostness, and, he's, and him saying, by my right hand, by my might, by my strength, by my grace, I'm going to rescue you from this situation. I'm going to pull you out of this environment. I'm going to change your circumstance. No longer will you be slaves. Now you will be called my children. That's grace. That's God's gracious activity to Israel. It's only after that deliverance that you get the law. It's only after that salvation, after that redemption, after that transformation, if you will, that God then gives Israel the law. First, he comes in and rescues them. So that's grace. And it's present throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. And I think no psalm, as we're going through the psalms right now, no psalm better portrays and pictures grace and its impact than Psalm 51. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 51. This will be our, our passage this morning. The heading for the psalm tells us what? It says, it's a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Now, if you remember the story, the story uh, that we find in, in Samuel, David uh, was not where he was supposed to be. He, was, uh, he had stayed back at the, the palace while his men were out at war. Um, uh, he was supposed to be out with them, but he wasn't. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. And as he was wandering about on uh, his uh, the, the roof of his palace, he, he saw Bathsheba bathing, and he lusted after her, and he called her to himself and had relations with her, committed adultery. And then she sends word a little while later, I'm pregnant. And now David's in a panic because David knows that according to the law, man who commits adultery and so forth is uh, under the penalty of death. And so he calls back Uriah, Bathsheba's uh, husband, and one of David's closest men in his military. He, he was He's one of the mighty men of David, which means he was, he was in that inner circle that was around David. So he was David knew him well. And he calls back Uriah and he says, I, 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 I want to send you home. I want to send you to your wife. And and uh, Uriah refuses to, to go in. He says, how can I take the pleasures of home and so forth when, when my fellow warriors are out there in the field? Just heightening the whole sense of what David has done. David wasn't even at battle. He was at home, and he betrayed Uriah and all these other things. And Uriah says, how can I enjoy anything when 
my fellow warriors are out there. David realizing that he's not going to be able to, uh, to get Uriah to, to go into his wife, uh, hands him a note. And the note says to Uriah's general, Joab, says, put Uriah in the heat of the battle and then withdraw. Let him die. And so Uriah carries the message of his death back to the general. And that's what happens. Sure enough, they go into battle. Joab sees Uriah in the heat of the battle, and he orders the withdrawal of all those around him. And not only is Uriah killed for that, but so are several others who are around him because retreat has to be done a certain way for it to work. And the, the text specifically tells us many others of David's servants also died because of this maneuver. And so you have David here. He's guilty of adultery. He's guilty of deceit. He's guilty of murder now. And Nathan comes into him and, and calls him on it. He says, God is not pleased with what you've done. And Psalm 51 is David's response, at least according to Israel tradition, David's response to that revelation. You have murdered, you have committed adultery, but God is not pleased. And that's where we pick up here in Psalm 51 with David's response. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now again, considering all the things that David had done, all that the activities that had led to this confrontation, all the sins that had piled up on top of each other, how on earth is he even able to go to God and pray this prayer? To have the guts, perhaps we might put it, to go to God and say, God, forgive me. God, help me. God, deliver me. God, transform me. How, how is he able to do that? I mean, think of it in your own life, in your own experience. 
when you've done something terribly wrong to somebody, you, you've really hurt somebody, or somebody's really hurt you, and they come back to you, and, and imagine they coming back, they've really hurt you, they've they really uh, uh, wounded you in some significant way, and they come back to you and they say, I want you to forgive me. I think our first response, most of us, our first response is what? How dare you? Who do you think you are? I mean, you know what you did to me. You know how you hurt me. You know how you hurt my family. You know how you hurt my profession, my reputation, whatever it was. You, you know what you did to me, and you come back to me, and you want me to forgive you? And I, But I seriously doubt any of us in that encounter have experienced adultery and murder when people are asking for forgiveness. And that, yet that's what David has done, and he goes to God. He goes to God and he says, forgive me. Why can he do that? How can he do that? How can we even begin to think about that? It's grace. It's grace. The passage starts with what? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That's the basis for his request. That's the starting point for his exchange here with God. And it's that word that we looked at a couple weeks ago, chesed. It's that, it's that word that really doesn't have an, an English equivalent. It can mean loyalty or kindness or mercy or, or steadfast love or, or, or any number of ideas along those lines. And David here is saying, because I know of your past with Israel, I know of your past with me, because I know of your commitment to us, because I know of your grace. The fact that you have created this covenant at all is an expression of your grace. Because I know of that, because I know of your character, because I know who you are, I come to you now in prayer. I come to you now with this, with the audacity to say, forgive me, renew our relationship, let us be what we were before, or maybe even better than what we were before. And as we live our lives, as, as we walk on this path and, and on this journey, all of us at some point have to come to God and, and fall on His grace. All of us have to, to come to that point to where we acknowledge, I'm not worthy. I'm not in a position to make any demands or any request of you, God. I, I'm, I'm not in a position to, 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 to say to you, do this for me. You owe me nothing, God. But God, I'm falling on your grace nonetheless. I'm coming to you in submission nonetheless. And I'm saying, please, let your grace take hold. Now, one of the realities of, of grace in the present context, in our present situation, is that we've, we've tended to move toward cheapening it. We've, we've tended to move toward looking at grace and, 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 and as almost a, uh, just a, a ticket that, that's just this, this thing that's there that, well, I, I got grace, I'm just going to take that ticket, I'm going to hand it to God, and everything's going to be okay. There's one thing I hope to accomplish this morning 
as I prayed over this and, and sought God's direction and how to deal with this text, it's my hope that leaving here this morning, you have a deeper appreciation of what grace is. And that you understand that it's not just a, a cosmic shrug of God saying, oh well, okay. You have your ticket, I guess I have to do what you want to do. I guess I have to forgive you. I hope that that you're able to move past this this idea, this concept that that somehow you were owed your salvation, or or somehow you were God uh, was beholden to you to give you your salvation. He wasn't. God doesn't owe us anything. That's what's so amazing about grace. And I think that journey begins where, where we see it here in this passage is that the depth of our sin is met by the greater depth of our grace. This passage reveals to us how deep our sin is. The, the, the text talks about or uses three nouns for sin here in the opening lines. It talks about um, blot out my transgressions. Wash me of my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And those three nouns are, are the three most common words for, for sin in the Old Testament. Transgression, iniquity, sin. Transgression, the, the idea here is, 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 is that of revolt. It, it's that the, the concept behind that word is, is that you have a king, you have a sovereign, and, and He's your master. He's your boss. He's the one who's in control. And you revolt against him. That's where it starts. That's what sin ultimately is, right? It's, it's not acknowledging that God is king. It's saying that we're in control, that we're in charge, that, that we're the ones who determine what, what right and wrong is. It's saying, I'm king instead of God is king. Iniquity is, is the idea of, of, of the crooked path. It's the idea, it's the concept of, of you, you, have a, you have a path, you have a straight direction you're supposed to go, but, but you're off wandering in different ways. You're not following the, the outline that God's given you for your life. Sin, as I'm sure you've heard many times before, it's, it's missing the mark. It's, it's shooting at the target, and you have the bullseye, and you're way off over here or over there. And as we mentioned before, one of the ways that the Hebrew expresses the, 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 the power or the, or the significance of something is through repetition. And so by repeating these three words, by, by piling these three words about sin, one after another in this context, you say what? My sin is immense. My sin is great. My sin is big. But he couples each one of these words for sin with an imperative, with a request, a, a, a plea. It's an imperative, which, which means command, but it, it's not a command in terms of God, you have to do this. It's a command more in sense of, of please do this. It's a plea, it's a begging. Blot out, wash me, cleanse me. Only God can do that. God, take the, this, the depth of my sin, the, 
the, the, the, the degree of my rebellion against you and remove it thoroughly as only you can. That's grace. It, it, it's, it's starting with that knowledge, with that reality of sin, but acknowledging that God can deal with it. Grace also leads to authentic sorrow over sin. It takes personal responsibility for what we've done. It, it does not seek to blame the circumstances uh, on other people. It doesn't seek to blame the circumstances on God, but on our own failure. Notice in this psalm, there are no excuses. It doesn't seek to rationalize or explain or excuse or defend or justify any of the sins that he's committed. When you look at the first two kings of Israel, you have Saul and you have David. And what's interesting is when you look at them that, that if we were defining their sins, if we were classifying their sins, we would probably say David was the worst sinner. I mean, Saul, he made some mistakes, certainly. He committed, he performed a sacrifice instead of waiting for the prophets. Okay, he, he made a rash vow about um, warfare. Sin, certainly, but when you compare them to, to murder and adultery and, and the multiple other things that, that David is said to have done, you, 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 from our perspective, we would look at that and we would say, Saul's not as bad as David. And yet, what does the biblical record tell us about the two? That God said to Saul, your sin and your transgression and your attitude towards me has rendered you incapable of being king. And I'm removing the throne from your line. I would have established a dynasty with you, but because of your sin, when you die, your family's done. And yet, with David, you have God say what? This is a man after my own heart. What? How does that make sense? Well, one of the things, one of the realities is that Saul could never take responsibility for his sin. Never. There's not a single instance where Nathan or Samuel comes to, to Saul and says, you've sinned, and Saul says, you're right. I repent. I turn away from this. Every single time Saul is confronted with a sin, he points to someone else. Well, the people made me do that. The people were getting anxious, and, and I got a little nervous about them, and, and they forced me to do the sacrifice. Or, or you know, I, I looked at how good, you know, the, these animals were, and what a waste that would be, you know. I, and, and I figured God would certainly want the best, right? And so, I kept these animals for sacrifice, even though God told me to, to, to do away with them. He was always making excuses. He was always blaming someone else. But David, whenever he was confronted with sin, he owned up to it. He faced it. He admitted it. He confessed it. He was honest in his appraisal. 
And we need to be honest in our appraisal of our sin. We need to stop trying to, to fool God or ourselves or others about how, quote, righteous we are. And it's grace that allows us to do that. It's grace that allows us to, to, to go to God. Now, what we're talking about here is sorrow, not shame. There's a difference. Sorrow is, is, is a grief. It, it's an experience. It's an expression that says, I'm remorseful about what I've done. I, I, I feel grief over what I've done. Shame is this, this attitude of embarrassment or whatever before men. Grace calls us to sorrow before God. You only have I sinned against, the passage says here. Now, he's not in any way suggesting that he didn't sin against Uriah or he didn't sin against Bathsheba, he, but he's saying at the heart of it all, the meat of it all, the, 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 the importance of it all, is that it's our relationship with God that defines all these other things. And so we express the sorrow, we express, express the grief of our sin. And we can do that because God is gracious. David can pray this prayer because God has already said, come to me. God has already made this invitation. God has already established a relationship. And you and I, today, we can go to God with our sin. We can, we can be honest with our sin. He already knows it. Why try and hide it? And we can go to Him with it. Why? Because we know He's a gracious God. We can feel real sorrow. We don't have to hide it. We don't have to make excuses because we know he, He's already dealt with it. And so that leads to genuine confession of sin. That we understand that sin is, is not a mistake. It's not a slip. It's not mischief. It is Rebellion against a holy God. We understand that, that sin is something that we ought to be disgusted by, disapprove of. A few years ago, when I was pastoring in, in Bedford, I had a, a gentleman who was in our church who was who was a deacon. And he got on social media and he made a joke about, what kind of drunk are you? And it was an exchange and, and those sorts of things. And, and I cornered him about it. Now, those of you who know me know, I've said this before, I don't believe that drinking alcohol in and of itself is a sin. I think the Bible identifies many places where alcohol is consumed. I think Jesus drank alcohol. But any kind of drunkenness at all is a sin. I believe that's very clear from Scripture. Uh, to, to even get what you might call buzzed. I believe that's sinful because you're handing over control of your life to something other than God. That's why I believe it's a sin. That's why I believe the, the Scriptures teach it that way. I personally don't consume alcohol in any way, but I don't have any qualms with those who might have a beer 
once in a while or whatever. Okay. And this deacon knew that as well. And so when I cornered him about this post on social media, he was like, I was just trying to have some fun. And I said, why are we trying to have fun with the sin, drunkenness, that nailed our Savior to a cross? Why are we trying to make light of something that is so abhorrent to God? And, and, and we had a long discussion about it, that that... As believers, we can't have an attitude towards sin that, that it's just something that's fun or easy or whatever. We have, to, we have to confront it. We have to face up to it. We have to respond to it appropriately. If we're talking about someone else's sin, we do so with love and compassion. Why? Because God did that for us. If we're talking about our own sin, we confront it with, with a hatred, with a loathing. I don't want that to be a part of who I am. Grace allows me to do that. Why? Because I, I understand that my sin is a is a is a is a wounding, is a is a is a hurtful response to the God who graciously loves me. The one who's given me everything. The one who's reached out to me and who has responded to me. Why would I want to hurt that one? Why would I want to, to do anything to tell that one, you're not, you're not worthy of my love and my adoration? Why would I want to do anything along those lines? Grace allows me to, to spew sin correctly. It allows me to, to have right conduct in regard to sin, forsaking it, determined to renounce it, to, to walk away from it, purge me with his sup. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. I want to turn away from it. But ultimately, my grace is so special is that it leads to a tangible deliverance from sin. Create in me a clean heart. And, and that word create there really stands out. It's the same word that's used in Genesis when it talks about God creating the heavens and the earth. And what's so distinctive about that word that's there is that the, the only noun that can ever serve with that verb is God. The only person who can create is God. Men can shape, we can form, we can... We can mold, we can do all sorts of things like that, but we can't create. We can't take something and make it something entirely different. Or we can't take nothing and make something brand new. Only God can do that. And, and here you have this plea, God, do something in me. Create in me, what? A new heart, which is what? A new will, a, a new determination, a new outlook, a new way of making decisions, and renew a right spirit. There's that parallelism that we've talked about before in the Psalms where the, the two ideas are put side by side to express one deep truth. The transformation that God brings is complete transformation. It takes us from who we were before to who we can be in Him. 
Paul says it makes us a totally new creature. A being that didn't exist before when we stand before God. That's what grace accomplishes. And because of that, we have what? The joy of salvation he talks about here. That capacity to stand even in the the most difficult of times and to understand I'm in God's hands. I've been delivered by God and I can stand and, and I can find life and I can find hope and I can find direction in this moment because of what God has done. When we talk about deliverance from sin, we we talk first of all, obviously, about deliverance from the penalty of sin. That in that moment when we give our life to Jesus, the penalty that we should have paid, eternity separated from God, is changed, it's transformed, it's removed. Then as we continue to grow, we talk about salvation as deliverance from the power of sin. That as we mature and as we understand God better and as we walk with Him and as we, we live with Him, sin and sin has uh, sin has less and less a grip on us. We have de- decreasing frequency of yielding to it. We, 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 we understand God better and we walk with Him more closely, more dearly. And then one day we'll enjoy deliverance, salvation from the very presence of sin. when Christ returns in power and we're resurrected and we enjoy eternity by His side. What God's grace does to sin is complete and total deliverance from it. And that leads us what? It leads us then to reaching out to others. What does He say? Then I will teach transgressors your way. David understands here that that the deliverance that God is going to bring him isn't just about him. It's about making him into a conduit, into an avenue by which God can then reach others. And how many people have been transformed? How many people have been affected? How many people have been ministered to by this song? Why? Because of God's grace. God's grace took an adulterous murderer, and turned him into someone whose songs we read, we learn from, we grow through 3,000 years later. That's what God's grace can do. That's what God's grace can do for you. Understanding that and understanding that God is the only one that can do that is the heart of the matter in in overcoming sin. One of the the features that I note about this prayer is that you never hear David ask about or request help with his sexual deviancy here. He doesn't doesn't say, God, give me more strength to have restraint in the matters of lust. He doesn't pray, 
God, bring people around me to hold me accountable. He doesn't pray for protected eyes and sex-free thoughts. He, he doesn't pray for any of that. Not to say that those prayers are bad, but at the heart of this, what we see is, is that the reason he prays what he prays is that he understands that sexual sin and lust and murder and, and all these other things are just symptoms. They're not the disease. The disease is a separation from God. The disease is a rebellion against God. It just manifests itself differently. Some of us with gossip, some of us with 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 arrogance and, and other attitudes, some of us with lust, some of us with, with other realities that that uh, are, are part of our existence, that are part of our struggle. And, and we so often we look at those sins and we say, God, take this sin away from me or deliver me from the sin or help me with the sin or, or give me strength for this or give me strength for that. And we fail to recognize that the real answer is a fullness of joy and gladness in Christ. It's a walking with Jesus. It's a it's a communion with God. It's a connection with God. In Romans 3, I think many of us are familiar with uh, 3.23, for everyone has sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. But too often we fail to go on to verse 24. Yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. You want power over those sins that you slip back into, you fall prey to? It's not about learning how to better manage those sins, how to how to better manage your tongue or how to better manage your, your, your eyes and those sorts of things. It's about getting close to God. It's about walking with Him, relating to Him. Yes, we still practice wisdom and things we shouldn't participate in that, that what? Separate us from closeness to God. But our goal isn't sin management. Our goal is relationship. Our goal is understanding the depth of grace and the power of connecting with God. And when we do that, then we'll start to see a decreasing frequency of sin. I've seen many times in, in my counseling and so forth of, of relationships Where the person says, you know, one person says, well, I wish this other person would, would just stop this. I wish he would stop this. Or I wish she would stop this activity, whatever it is. And the other person would say quite often, well, it's important to me. It's kind of who I've always been and it's kind of what I've always done and, and these sorts of things. But part of the journey of that relationship is what? It's saying to that other person, because I'm in relationship with you, you're more important to me than that, whatever it is. And so I'm going to try and get closer to you by stopping that. The same thing's true in our relationship with God. It's saying to Him, God, you're more important to me 
than all these other things. I want to be close to you. I want to walk with you. I want to surrender to you. I want to know you. This morning as we conclude, I want to ask you, is, is that your prayer? Is that your focus? Have you moved beyond quote, sin management to knowing God, to walking with God, to relating with God? Because as you walk with Him and know Him and learn Him, His priorities will become your priorities. And the sins that enslave you will become less and less frequent expressions of who you are. Because they won't be your priorities anymore. They won't be what drives you anymore. That's the power of grace. That's what God calls us to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your grace. Your amazing, overwhelming, undeserved grace. And God, we pray that you would help us to to walk in the power of that grace, to walk in the the power of your presence, to know you more. God, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's, who's still walking according to their own desires, according to their own plans and purposes, who who hasn't surrendered to you, who hasn't responded to your grace, Lord, that you'd lay that on their heart this morning, and that you would draw them to salvation, that they would experience that deliverance from the penalty of sin that I spoke of earlier. They'd experience the, the hope, the joy of your salvation and grow by experiencing deliverance from the power of sin as well. Lord, use this time to, to reveal to, to all of us those places where we've made something else a priority instead of you. Help us to to focus on you, to relate to you, to get close to you in what we do and who we are. Help us to leave here this morning with a with a commitment, a desire to know you and to make you known. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.